All right, who's afraid of the dark? Come on, be honest. Who's afraid of the dark? All right, we've got some hands. I remember as a kid lying in bed in the dark, wondering whether I'd locked the backsliding door. It was always the backsliding door I was worried about. Surely a robber would find out and take me away. But I was too afraid, of course, to slip out under the covers to check. Now my niece Taylor insists on leaving the door open when she sleeps at night to allow a little bit of light into the room. I always thought that made it easier for the burglar, so I preferred to keep my door shut. Now some of these childhood fears of the dark are relieved through the brilliant invention of the nightlight. I don't know who came up with that, but that was a great idea. But it turns out, even still, that some of us never grow out of our fear of the dark. A recent survey of adults revealed that 40% of us are afraid of the dark. In fact, one in every 10 adults in the survey admitted that they won't even get out of bed to use the restroom in the middle of the night because they're afraid of the dark. So why are we afraid of the dark? It's not actually the darkness that's frightening, is it? Rather, it's the fear of what the darkness hides. The darkness hides the unknown, the black, mysterious stuff that Jack was talking about. The darkness leaves us vulnerable and exposed. The darkness renders us unable to spot any threats that might be lurking nearby. We're afraid of the dark because we're because we don't know what's there, right in front of us, and our imagination projects all sorts of dangerous possibilities. The prophet Isaiah has a word for us today about the darkness. Before we hear it, let us remember where we're at in the story of Scripture. Since the beginning of Heartland's program here, we've been making our way through the Old Testament, chronologically. And now we find ourselves in the Old Testament prophets, in the middle of a three-week series called Hope for Justice. We're trying to take at face value the hard words of three of these prophets. Last week was Amos, this week is Isaiah, and next week is Jeremiah. I want us to remember, though, that the series is called Hope for Justice, not the hopelessness of injustice. I know many of us felt overwhelmed by the problem of injustice last Sunday, and that's probably a good place to be after one week. As one commentator says, if the prophets don't make you uncomfortable, then you don't understand the prophets. So feeling uncomfortable and overwhelmed is an okay place to be after the first week of our series, but it's not a good place to stay. The intent of the prophets, it's not only to call attention to the darkness in the world, but it's also to call our attention to the light that shines in the darkness. For God is at work, my friends, even now, shining the light in the darkest and hardest of places. So we do not despair, but we hope for justice. And it's Isaiah's task to convince us that it's actually possible and reasonable to hope for justice. So we enter Isaiah through the door of chapter 9. Now the context is a little confusing, so here are four brief things we should know before we enter. Are you ready? Yeah? First, by the time we get to Isaiah, the one kingdom of Israel has split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. Second, 
Amos, from last week, preaches to Israel in the north. God's intention is to convict Israel of their unjust ways of living, so they change their ways and avert destruction. Third, Israel doesn't listen to Amos. The result is that God allows the kingdom of Assyria to conquer Israel in war. Israel then experiences what we've all experienced, and that's the consequences of our sin. They become a people who live in a land of deep darkness. This darkness for them is a life of oppression, as war slaves of Assyria. And it's a direct, this is important, it's a direct consequence, their darkness is a direct consequence of their own actions of oppressing others. Fourth, after these events, Isaiah preaches to Judah in the south. He preaches to Judah in order for them to prevent making the same mistakes as Israel made. God sends Isaiah to erect a billboard, so to speak, with a picture of Israel in the darkness, as if to say, look, this is what happens when you fail to love God and neighbor. You will fall into the darkness. God will eventually withdraw his hand and let you taste the consequences of your sin. But even then, know this, God will never give up on you. God will, well, let's listen for ourselves to Isaiah's words. Hear the word of the Lord to Judah concerning the people of Israel. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, two provinces of Israel. But in the, le- in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice with you as with joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child has been born, a son given to us, Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. When Isaiah refers to the people who walked in darkness, he's referring to the northern kingdom of Israel as they paid the price for their wrongdoings. But did you hear the hope for justice in our passage? Even the hope for those who once acted unjustly. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. 
Friends, God shines light in the darkness of Israel's experience. And glory takes the place of shame. Joy comes to the joyless. And the rod of oppression is placed across the shoulders of the Prince of Peace, whose kingdom will last forever and ever. I think that's reason enough to hope for justice, don't you? Isaiah is talking about the experience of the people of Israel in chapter 9. He's speaking to Judah in the south, and he's talking to them about their older brother, Israel. Israel has messed up big time, and they are paying for it, and their price has felt to them like nothing but darkness. But Israel's sin is not the end of the, sor- in the, end of the story. Neither is our sin the end of ours. Isaiah's message is filled with hope as he describes God's most merciful dealings with a group of people that had once done some terrible things. Israel is the people who once walked in darkness, and upon them the light shines by the sheer grace of God. Now, Isaiah is clearly referring to Israel in this text, but he could have just as easily been talking to those of us gathered here this morning. We, too, know what it's like to walk in darkness, don't we? Is there a single person here today who has never traveled to the land of deep darkness? As my niece Macy lamented yesterday, we had our family Thanksgiving yesterday. As my niece lamented, it's hard to be a seventh grader. (laughs) It's hard to be any age in a world scarred by sin and brokenness. And so sometimes we end up in the dark for the same reasons that Israel ended up in the dark. We make poor choices. We give in to the surface-level desires, ignoring the deeper desires of our hearts. Instead of dealing with the real problems, which often requires more courage and vulnerability than we feel up to, instead of dealing with the deeper issues and the swirl of emotions, we self-medicate. We eat more than we should We drink more than our liver can handle. We watch more TV than is good for us. We rush around, piling into the car, stress upon stress. We sleep with someone we can't call husband or wife, or at least we entertain the thought. And for a little while, all seems fine. We feel happy, excited, satisfied, and entertained. Israel felt this way too. But eventually our choices catch up with us. And God lets us taste their consequences. The result is that we end up hurt in the dark. Like people living in a land of deep darkness. We feel ashamed, disoriented, with no God in sight. Is there anyone here today who is familiar with the land of deep darkness? Perhaps you just came from there an hour ago. Oh God, may your floodlight of grace shine upon this person. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You are included in that people. Yes, you, any of you who have traversed the path of darkness, God shines light in the darkness of your experience. And glory, glory takes the place of shame. Joy comes to the joyless and the rod of oppression that once seemed to you so, so heavy. It's now placed upon the shoulders of another 
a child who has been born to us, a son who has been given. Who is Isaiah talking about here? Isaiah is writing in the 700s B.C. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the one who is too marvelous to be called by a single name. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, whose kingdom of justice and righteousness shall never end. Friends, this is the destiny, the kingdom of justice and righteousness that knows no end. This is the destination for all who see the light shining in the darkness and recognize the light for what it is. There is a kingdom of light in which righteousness and justice will fully and finally prevail when all the wrongs of the world will be set right and all who respond in faith to the Son who makes these things so will enjoy this restored creation forever. How would you like to take part in this party? This is the land of the living, into which the Spirit of God transports all who agree with the angel's words to Mary. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Friends, Jesus' authority will grow continually. Friends, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. As John's gospel sees it, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory. He spoke about Jesus. So when we read Isaiah 9, verse 7, we can replace David's name with the name of Jesus. Jesus' authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus speaks so much about in his teachings 700 years after Isaiah. It's a kingdom where the oppressed receive help, the orphans are defended, and the widows protected. It's a kingdom with a fair and just economy, where the poor are never taken advantage of and the rich are extravagantly generous. It's a kingdom without slaves. It's a kingdom of light, where the darkness is shattered like glass and the glory floods through with the light of a thousand suns. This is Jesus' kingdom of justice, and I promise you The Bible promises you it will be fully realized when Christ the King returns at last. That's why we hope for justice, because we hope in the God of justice who has promised that justice will fully and finally prevail on the last day when Christ returns in his body to ensure that it is so. Therefore, beloved of God, If we believe the future reality of justice that Christ will establish and secure, what then are we to do in the present? Are we to go on living however we want, content with a world of slaves, because in the end God will make it all better anyways? Some may choose this option, but it's not really an option for Christians. For we are called 
We're called to act now as it will be one day. We're called to give the world a picture that points to the justice that will be realized in the future, however blurry and imperfect that picture may be. To return to the image of our scripture passage, God shines light in the darkness even now, and we are called to be that very light. Jesus declares about himself, I am the light of the world. But then, Jesus turns that statement back on us, the church, and he declares over us, you are the light of the world. Friends, God not only shines light in the darkness, but God chooses to empower Christians to be that very light. We are the ones God chooses to illuminate from the inside out. And God does so not just for our own sake, but for the sake of all who still live in the land of deep darkness. So here's the challenge, put simply. Be the light that God shines in the darkness. Be the light that God shines in the darkness. Friends, so many people still walk in darkness. Many of them are outside of these church walls. They are like us, people who walk in darkness. But unlike us, they have yet to see a great light. They have yet to see the bright light of Jesus. And sometimes, at least sometimes, it's because the church has not yet been brave enough to enter the darkness. Too many of us Christians are still afraid of the dark, I suspect. Honestly, in many ways, I'm still afraid of the dark. Lord, cast out our fears with the light of your presence. Too many of us in the church are afraid of the dark. So instead of bravely bringing light into the dark world of others, which of course comes at the risk of rejection, we resort to mere talk. We talk about how the world of others is dark and sinful, and we distance ourselves from them. To use Jesus' words, we hide our light under a basket. We keep our light to ourselves. We take the light from our individual candles and we gather around other individual lights and we're happy to let them all shine together in sanctuaries already brightly lit. All this is as it should be, this gathering together of lights. But we cannot forget the next step. The next step is to take that light into the darkest corners of Tippecanoe County, to take that light into the darkest corners of our own families, to take that light into the darkest corners of our own souls with our own dark past, and to pray and trust that the light of Christ shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never, ever overcome the light. There's one specific example of darkness that has struck home for me this week. Earlier this week, I received a letter from Bethany Christian Services. Does anybody know of this agency? It's a nonprofit created by an RCA family many years ago in West Michigan after they adopted their first child. Now, Bethany is now a leading agency for adoption services and foster care and pregnancy support. 
Now, I receive a lot of letters from Christian organizations, and most of them, to continue with our metaphor, don't see the light of day. But since I was already familiar with Bethany, I opened the letter. Here's what I learned. 1,200 kids in Indiana are in need of foster family today. Never before, never before, have there been so many kids in our state's foster care system than there are today. In fact, each day, 13 children are placed into the foster care system in Indiana due to what they call the opioid crisis, the drug crisis. In other words, the children walk in the darkness, and it's not their fault. Israel walked in darkness as a consequence of their sin. We've all walked in darkness for many of the same reasons, but there are so many Indiana children who walk in the darkness, and it's not their fault. They walk in the darkness of abandonment, not knowing whether whether they'll have a mommy or daddy tomorrow. And it's largely because of that drug of the devil called heroin. Now, all this hit home for me, not just because we have a precious one-year-old daughter. This all hit home for me, not just because Lily recently played with a three-year-old boy who's, uh, who's the foster child of one of our friends. This all hit home for me because my brother, whom some of you know at the pie auction, is a recovering addict. And his daughter doesn't know when or if she'll ever see mommy again. The cloud of darkness threatens to suffocate these dear family members of mine. And honestly, it's all too easy for me to avoid the darkness. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Forgive me, Justin. Forgive me, Taylor. So I called my dear brother last Friday, convicted of God's word through Isaiah. I was nervous, as we all are when we enter these conversations. I, was, I procrastinated for some time. I didn't know what to say. And we entered a conversation about several things, including his own experience of walking in the darkness. He gave me permission to share the following. According to Justin's experience and his interactions with others at NA, Narcotics Anonymous, people walk in darkness because they don't know how to talk about their issues. And they don't know how to reach out to others. And they feel like they don't fit in. They feel like the black sheep. They feel overwhelmed with feelings. Many of his NA friends went through some traumatic experience as a kid, and nobody was there to guide them through it. These are the real issues, not the drugs, he insists. Drugs then become a temporary solution to the underlying problems. The drug is the only thing that makes them feel better. Nothing else they have tried works. But eventually the drug itself becomes the biggest problem, of course. And that's when one settles in to the land of deep darkness, unable to even realize the darkness they're bringing into the lives of others, others whose only desire is to have mommy and daddy back. But Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. That's why last Friday my brother celebrated six months clean, 
This does not happen without the overflowing mercy of God in his life. This does not happen without his courage to expose the darkness, without his willingness to go into the dark corners of his own soul that he might receive light. But neither does it happen if all the Christians decide to stay home. Neither does it happen if all the light bearers decide to huddle together to make a brighter glow in the sanctuary, yet forget to strike up a fire of love in the dark and uncomfortable places. Friends, my prayer for you and I is that our compassion for people walking in the darkness will grow stronger than our fear of the dark. Lord, may our compassion for people walking in the darkness grow stronger than our fear of the dark. After all, we believe in the God of love who claims that perfect love drives out fear. After all, we believe that Christ is the light of the world and those who follow him will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. After all, we believe the Holy Spirit will shine light in the darkness and glory will take the place of shame. Joy will come to the joyless and the rod of oppression that once broke our backs is now carried by the shoulders of another whom we know as Jesus Christ, our King, when he shouldered that cross extinguishing the powers of darkness, overcoming it with the resurrection of light. If we believe in this king, this king whose authority shall grow continually, who will one day complete his work of endless peace, justice, and righteousness, then isn't it only logical for us to act now for peace, justice, and righteousness? Well, how do we do this practically? How do we further Christ's mission of justice in the world practically? Pastor Stephanie offered several possibilities last week, and I encourage you to return to your sermon notes from there. I'll post it on Facebook in case you lost those. How else do we do it practically? I can't tell you exactly how you are to do this practically because I'm not perfectly informed of your situation, but I know someone who is, and he loves hearing from you, responding to you. It's your kind Heavenly Father, and He especially loves helping you join in His business. So here's a couple of conversations between you and God the Father. First, consider where you see the darkness around you and in you. Talk with God about it. Where do you see the darkness in and around you? Try to stay as personal and local as possible. Perhaps make a list. Begin to pray for God to use you somehow to be God's light that shines in the darkness. Second conversation starter. Consider where you've been given power and responsibility. Who do you have authority over? Who do you have influence over? Perhaps it's employees or kids. Where do you have influence? Talk to God about these areas and these people. And ask God to show you how to use your power and influence to bring light into the darkness. The book Justice Calling, which Stephanie mentioned last week, addresses this question of how we do this practically, how we practically further Christ's mission of justice. Here's what the authors say. They say, wherever we have been given power and authority, power and responsibility— 
We are to use that power and responsibility to challenge, undermine, and otherwise diminish oppression, injustice, and corruption. And in turn, to encourage harmony, fruitfulness, and abundance, wholeness, beauty, joy, security, and well-being. Then they admit, living each of our callings in ways that engage the realities, the dark realities, requires hard work and imagination. So we need to engage in conversations with others who can dream and imagine with us. Ultimately, as we are sanctified by the Spirit of God and sent out, ultimately, we can offer our entire lives with gratitude to God, who so deeply loves us that he graciously gives us all we need to live as his children, seeking first his kingdom, justice, and righteousness. So if we are to live like this, if we are going to be the very light of God that shines in the darkness, then we're going to have to enter the darkness that we'd naturally prefer to avoid. But we don't need to enter it afraid. Remember, remember why people are afraid of the dark. We're afraid of the dark because we don't know what's there, right in front of us. But friends, we do know what's there. It's the Spirit of Jesus empowering us, protecting us, illuminating us from the inside out to such an extent that the darkness is no longer dark at all. I want to leave you with a page from one of my daughter's favorite books. The book is called Daddy Hugs. It's one of my favorite books, too. The book counts from one hug to ten hugs. And I want to leave you with hug number nine. Imagine yourself as a vulnerable child before your heavenly daddy as he reads you this page. Nine, don't be afraid of the dark hugs. Nine, don't be afraid of the dark hugs. My beloved child, a father tells us, Let my divine embrace cast out all fear. Let me give you nine don't be afraid of the dark hugs. So let us be God's light that shines in the darkness, embraced by the hugs of our Father who ensures us that we need not fear the dark and we are loved 10,000 times over. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.